scripture this morning is from the book of Zechariah, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Then he showed me, maybe I should use this. That's better, yeah? All right. The reading this morning is from the book of Zechariah, chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Then he showed me Joshua, the high priest, standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan standing at his right hand to accuse him. And the Lord said to Satan, The Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? Now Joshua was standing before the angel, clothed with filthy garments. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, Remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, Behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you, and I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Let them put, clean, put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments, and the angel of the Lord was standing by. This is the word of the Lord. Well, thanks, everyone. Uh, It's been great to get to know some of you this morning, and I appreciate the opportunity to come and open God's Word to you this morning. I wanted to say just a a little bit about um, El Faro, which Nick has already mentioned before praying uh, for for the Lord to open our eyes to see Jesus in this text. Uh, My name is Dan. This is my wife, Mariana, and our baby, Sophia. Uh, And El Faro, in English, means means lighthouse. The the full title of the program is actually uh, El Faro de Redención which means Redemption Lighthouse. And we've been on the air across Cuba and the Caribbean since February 5th. Um, For a long time, Transworld Radio, if you've ever heard of of that organization, has been reaching the eastern side of Cuba uh, just for decades um, with a a transmitter um, off the coast of Venezuela. But, you know, they kind of, you know, let the transmitter fall into disrepair. They really had no reason to, to boost it at that time. But... I don't know how much you've heard about what's going on in Cuba, but it's just a massive Christian revival right now. Um, I've had the opportunity to go a few times, and the church is just thriving. So Transworld Radio uh, had the idea to boost this transmitter um, from 100,000 watts to 500,000 watts. And that's kind of radio speak that I don't even entirely understand. Um, but what that means is one time I was passing Temecula in February. We had just gone on the air, and I could tune in our program all the way from, from Bonaire. Uh, you know, a little bit uh, faint and behind a TJ station. But uh, all that to say, there's this great opportunity that we have to um, do what you guys are accustomed to hearing every Sunday, and that's preaching Christ from all of Scripture. Uh, Over the air for 11.5 million Cubans to hear and to grow in their understanding of God's Word. Uh, You know, and and the reach is far beyond that. We have some listeners that write in from Venezuela, from Central America. Uh, and it's, it's just a, it's an amazing and humbling opportunity to be a part of that. So I'd invite you to pray for us as El Fado continues to, as we say every day on the program, shine the light of Christ from all of Scripture for all of Cuba. And I want Christ's light to shine from this text we're going to read this morning. So why don't we pray, and then let's uh, go to God's Word and see how He would show us Jesus this morning. Let's pray together. Father, we just thank you uh, once again for this opportunity to come before you in worship. And now as we come before your Word... We pray that you would uh, speak to our hearts, Lord, that you would show us uh, your message of grace from from this passage, this vision in Zechariah, 
And we pray, Lord, that we would, we would be encouraged and challenged by what we hear, that we would be made more like Jesus and more reliant on, on you for your grace um, in all that we do. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, the story we're going to look at this morning, um, the, the, the title of the sermon is uh, From Rags to Righteousness. And I was thinking back uh, about some of the rags to riches stories that, that we know and that we were familiar with. I don't know if many of you remember uh, the, the 2006 movie with Will Smith and his son Jaden, the, the Pursuit of Happiness, um, but that's a great rags to riches story. You have uh, Will Smith uh, portraying uh, really a true story of Chris Gardner. He's a young African-American dad who ends up raising his son, uh, trying to put a roof over his head, food on the table, after going through just a, a lot of really unfortunate circumstances. And, and what, what we find there is uh, we, we see in this story something that really resonates with us. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a sad story, and you can go on YouTube and find interviews with the real Chris Gardner and, and see the story. I'd encourage you to, to do that. It's really interesting. Uh, but he's, he's, he ends up on the streets. He's sleeping on the bus and subway restrooms. And all the while, he's pursuing this internship at this uh, stockbroker. And, and the promise of this internship is that if, if you know, the, the one intern who does the best, who's the most successful um, in the internship, will be given this uh, prestigious, you know, lucrative position at this firm. So we get to the, we get to the moment where he's, he's set up the interview to become an intern, and his car gets impounded, he gets put in lockup overnight, and we see, we see morning come around, he's released, and he takes off running to the interview. And all he has on is, a, is an undershirt and these really uh, paint-stained, ripped-up blue jeans. So even if you haven't seen the movie, you can picture the scene, right? He's sitting in this high-rise office with all of these Armani suits interviewing him. And he's sitting there in an undershirt and, and ripped-stained blue jeans. And one of, the, one of the guys finally says, look, what would you say if a man came in here wearing, it wasn't even wearing a shirt, asked me for a job and I gave it to him? What would you say? And, uh, and Chris Gardner, trying to make, you know, uh, see the silver lining in the story, says, well, I would say the mo- those must have been some really nice pants, right? <laughs> and we just, the whole story, it, it's, it's touching, it, it's hard to see the struggle, but it's, it's, it's it, there's something that resonates with that story, about that story with us, because I think we all, uh, we just, there's something deep in us that resonates with that rags to riches theme. We think that, you know, if we could just, persevere, and we admire the perseverance we see in Chris Gardner. If we can just roll up our sleeves, if we could just put our nose to the grindstone, then that, that can be our story too. It's just something kind of ingrained in us. But what I want to show you this morning from Zechariah 3 is that there's a greater story that we find in Scripture. And it's a story that reaches and, and, and answers the, the greater problem that we have. You know, the rags to riches story answers the problem of poverty, which is a, a, a great problem, but the greatest problem that we have isn't that we need a rags to riches story. We need a rags to righteousness story. And we see that all throughout God's word. But I think as clearly as anywhere, we see it here in Zechariah chapter three. We see that in the rags to righteousness story, what we need is an answer to the problem of being sinners, desperately wicked and condemned, standing before a holy God. And we need an answer to, to, to how, will, how will we be able to get out of that, that predicament. And what we find here, and we see it so beautifully illustrated in Zechariah 3, is that it, it, we can't overcome that just by rolling up our sleeves, just by trying a little harder, just by being a little better. We need divine intervention to reach down 
and to change us, to make us what we can't become by ourselves. So what we see in Zechariah 3, uh, we, see that, we see that this rags to righteousness story begins with you and me and everyone who's ever lived dead to rights because of sin. And what we see is that while we're accused and, and rightly accused of being sinners condemned before a holy God, Jesus steps in and Jesus silences the case of the accuser. And he does that by substituting himself in our place. Or to put it more briefly, more, just more concise, in Zechariah 3, we see that this rags-to-righteousness story of Scripture is all about the accuser's case against us, silenced by the substitute. Those are kind of the two points that I want to walk through this story with you uh, under these two headings. Um, first, we're going to see the accuser's case against Joshua, and that's also against the people and against you and me. And then we're going to see the substitute silencing the case against us. So, so first, let's start to unpack this, this first thing we see, and it's the accuser's case against Joshua. When we come to this passage, uh, it, it, we have to remember it's a vision, so there's, it's important to bear in mind we're seeing this unfold in this vision that Zechariah is seeing, so it's, it's, it's symbolic. It's representing something real and true in our lives. So we come to this passage in this vision, and we find ourselves sitting in the visitor aisles in God's royal court. You know, there's no separation of powers in God's kingdom. He is the king. He is the judge. He is the lawmaker. And we find ourselves in God's royal court. And Joshua is being brought up on charges in his presence, uh, the presence of the divine judge who is also the king of kings. But who is Joshua? Well, it's not Joshua fit the battle of Jericho, Joshua. It's a, it's a different Joshua. This is Joshua, the high priest in Zechariah's day. And it's important for us to remember that, like I said, this is a vision. So as we see Joshua and we talk about Joshua, he's symbolic. He represents the people as a, as a collective, as a whole, the people of God. And he represents you and me in this story. So we, we want to learn from the Lord is showing Zechariah in this vision. So the next question we have to ask to kind of set the stage is, what is Joshua a picture of? Well, in these five verses that we're looking at together, um, as I've said, Joshua represents the people. He's the high priest. He would be the one who would go in and make sacrifices on behalf of the people as their representative. So just like the real Joshua, the high priest, represented uh, the people of God collectively before the Lord, that's what he does as a symbol in this vision, too. And we're going to find that he doesn't just represent them, but he represents you and me. What's going on here as far as the background, as far as where the people of God are at when this, when we, when this vision occurs and Zechariah sees this story, we see that Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, was taken into captivity for 70 years away from the land. They were exiled from, from the promised land. But now, 20 years after they've returned to the land, by God's grace, their spirits are down. Um, they, they, they envision this great restoration of the glories of the land and of the temple, and, and they thought everything would be put back the way it was. But now, 20 years later, you know, they're, they're no longer captive, but they just think, well, maybe all of those hopes have been dashed, and things aren't going to return to the way they were. You know, they, they, they think their problem is this temple that's been torn down, and over and over, they, they lament the fact that they don't have the glorious temple that they once did. But what we see in Zechariah 3 is that they had a greater problem than just a torn down temple. The real problem was the, the rubble they had made of their own hearts by rebelling against their covenant Lord, by going after their own ways and following other gods. And they don't just need a rebuilding project for the country. They need a rebuilding project for their own 
hearts. And we see that unfold here. Uh, you know, the, I mentioned this rebellion. That, that was the whole reason they had gone into exile. You know, they had been delivered out of Egypt. They had been slaves in Egypt and delivered by God's grace. They had been brought into the land of promise. They had been given uh, his way of life, the, the Ten Commandments, and all of this by God's grace. But as a picture of, of what the rebellion of sin leads to, they were to remain in the land by obeying their Lord. That was the deal. Life and blessing and peace in the land was, was based on the principle of do this and live. So if, that were, if you were you know, Israel and you were delivered out of bondage and you were freed from slavery and you were told to, to do this and you were remain in the land, obey me, serve me, be faithful to me, then I don't know, what, what would you do? What would your, I, I think all of us would naturally say, well, of course, you know, we're going to obey. But they didn't. It seems like the obvious choice, but they didn't. The people decide to rebel, to pursue other pleasures, other lords, other gods, and then we have the exile. So this exile for disobedience, it gives us the stark and vivid reality that none of us can obey of our own accord. None of us can be perfect. None of us can do this. And it also gives us a stark and vivid picture of the deadly wages of sin. But what was a picture for us in this, this exile, it wasn't the final point in their story. The Old Testament would have been much shorter. The whole Bible would have been much shorter, right? If that had been the end of the story, it would have been roll credits, the end, it's, it's over. They go into exile and that's it. But what we see here is after 70 years, the Lord has brought them back. And now they were, they were, they were brought back to build the holy place of worship again. But they're also being brought back so that their own hearts and lives would be rebuilt. But 20 years later, they're still standing here with an unfinished temple. Um, they're still stained and dirty from their wayward worship. And so here in this vision, the whole nation is represented in God's courtroom by Joshua. And, and what we see here is that the, the case against the people is unfolded. And it's the case against you and me. Uh, and what we'll see is that the, the, the accuser's case against us is rock solid. There's, there's no getting out of it. We are completely guilty. Um, the, the accuser is right. But I want, to look, look about, I want to look at this accusation together, and then we're going to see that that's not the end of our story either. There's, there's more to the story than what the accuser throws at us. So first, let's look at who the accuser is in the story. The accuser is Satan. The word Satan is a Hebrew word for accuser, and that's how we see him referred to in Zechariah 3. And he's the one who's standing here in this vision, making his case against Joshua and against the people. Um, we see that in verse 1. He's standing at his right hand to accuse him. And I think one thing that's important to notice as we look at this is that's one of the main things that Satan does. I mean, it's built into his name, right? He's the accuser of God's people. He, he, one person has put it this way. He throws believers' sins in their face and tempts their consciences every day. I think we're all familiar with that, right? We've all faced Satan's accusations. Um, but I think we need to take a moment and distinguish something. We, Satan's accusation shouldn't be confused with like true conviction over sin. The way I think of this is the longer I get into my third decade of life, I'm a lot more attuned to my food conscience than I used to be. Uh, you know, after four years of a pretty sedentary life in seminary, uh, the numbers didn't lie, had to bring down all of these counts and uh, so what that means is my wife has been, you know, gracious but unforgiving and, you know, giving me more kale salads and I'm not allowed to grill as much as I would like to, you know. And, but but as, as I train my food conscience to know, to know what is actually going to harm me, what the consequences will be, 
then you know, that, that's a good thing. I, I start to feel a little guilty for having that, that extra brat or that extra you know, ribeye or whatever the case may be. Um, you know, maybe it's sweets, maybe it's, uh, I don't know what it is for you, but you know that as you develop that and you train that conscience, it, it's for your good. Well, that's, that's a good way to think about our God-given consciences. As we train our consciences in the light of God's word to know what is God's will for us to do and how we're supposed to live, then that conscience pricks us because of our sin. However, there's a subtle difference between that, and a lot of times we miss it. There's a subtle difference between that and the accusations of Satan. Because what Satan does is he takes our consciences when they aren't informed by the gospel truth that we've been forgiven and we can live free before our Lord. We can live holy lives that please him out of gratitude for this this gospel assurance that we have. Satan latches onto that. And and so when you feel the prick of condemnation, not just of, 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 of conviction because you've disobeyed the Lord, but of condemnation. When your faith is in Jesus and you, maybe you're here this morning and you feel just that crushing weight of condemnation, of this idea that you should just go and curl up in a ball and there's no hope for you, even though you've believed in Jesus. That's not a a, a gospel-trained conscience speaking. That's the accusations of Satan himself. And he does it every single day against us. So when you feel that that sense of unworthiness and unforgivableness, that is is what we're seeing here. Um, it, It doesn't mean that you're not guilty. It doesn't mean that you haven't sinned. But that sense that you, there's no hope for you, that's the accusations of Satan. But when, and when he accuses us, he's not wrong. And that's what we see next in the story. Uh, we, we hear his accusations. Um, and what we see is that his accusations are never contradicted in this vision. Joshua never says, but, but no, I'm, I'm innocent. He's silent. The Lord never actually says Joshua is innocent. As far as his sin is concerned, he's guilty. He is guilty, and the people are guilty, and we're guilty, and everything that Joshua is representing is true in this story. Somebody have, some people have tried to actually soften this a little bit, and they've tried, to say that, um, they've tried to say that when Joshua is standing there in dirty rags, which is, you know, that's kind of like the smoking gun in the situation. It's, it's his sin in full view of a holy God. They've tried to say, well, he was just contaminated because of the long exile in Babylon, or he was in mourning over the temple, and so he sprinkled sackcloth and ashes on himself. And that's just, that's just not the case. The, the Hebrew doesn't do it any favors in this story. To put it mildly, he is dressed in a stinking pile of filth. That's, that's the weight of what's being said here. He is absolutely wretchedly guilty. There's no mistaking that. And the same is true of us. The same is true of us. Even when we've placed our faith in Christ, we continue to sin. We continue, uh, we continue to be guilty before God uh, in, in the sense that we've actually done wrong, in the sense we've actually broken his commandments. There's never a time when Satan won't have anything that he can stick to you. Um, you know, I, I remember a, a phrase my dad used to use when he, was, uh, when he would preach on topics like this. He said that, you know, none of us are Teflon-coated pans. Something always sticks, Right? Uh, we always know that there's something that can be pointed out in our lives. And so we see here that the, the evidence for Satan's case against Joshua, against the people, against us, it's solid so far as the evidence goes. He, he's, Joshua has represented the people, and he's absolutely filthy. filthy. And sometimes it's obvious, like in the story where, where Joshua is clothed in filthy rags. You know, it's, it's sometimes we just stink as much as a, a high schooler after a ball game, and you just say, please, just go take a shower. Everybody, know, you know you need one. 
I know you need one. Everybody knows, everybody knows that you need a shower. But sometimes it's a, it's, it's a lot more... Um, it's a lot more beneath the surface than that. Because there's another kind of stinking rags we need to be aware of, and it's the stinking rags of self-righteousness. You know, when you're blatantly, obviously sinning, and someone is blatantly um, just living a life that is in complete rebellion to the Lord, it can be really obvious. But a lot of us can sit here on Sunday mornings, and we can have our nice Sunday morning face and our nice Sunday morning clothes, and we can still be clothed in the stinking rags of self-righteousness. And that's probably one of the most dangerous forms of of stinking rags of all because it seems like everything is put together. It seems like we're okay. And it may even seem like we're we're just a, a stellar, exemplary Christian. But deep down, we're relying on our own works to gain us favor before the Lord. And that puts us in just as guilty of a place as outright and utter rebellion to God. So if we trust in our own righteousness, we're, we're done for. We need new clothes. We need something from the outside. We can't just say, wow, well, these must be pretty nice pants, you know, like Chris Gardner in this story. We, we need redemption. We need something to solve the situation, and it can't come from ourselves. Um, Charles Spurgeon, the, the, the Baptist preacher, said, um, Truly, dear friend, if Satan wants to accuse us, any page of our history, any hour of any day will furnish him material for our charges. Would you agree with that? Thinking back over this week, would you agree with that? Have you been impatient, proud, lustful, arrogant, angry, hurtful, um, coarse or harsh with your tongue or, I don't know, with our fingers in our day of social media or thumbs? Every single hour of every single day will furnish us, will furnish something for Satan's charges. Spurgeon went on and he said that the heart is full of sins like a den of unclean birds and he wished he could wring all their necks but he couldn't. Uh, I grew up on the mission field in Mexico. Uh, I don't know, you know, we're in San Diego. Maybe some of you are from a more rural area and you've ever chased, have you ever chased a chicken and tried to catch a chicken? It's, it's really hard to do. Uh, at least it was for me. It was one of my first, you know, lessons in life in the village. Let's chase this chicken because it's dinner. So you chase it and it, it's, you know, three or four kids trying to tackle this chicken and it's so hard to do. Well, um, our hearts are like a whole rowdy chicken coop full of sin. And no matter how hard we try, we cannot get them all. All of us collectively could never chase them all down. We, we need something from the outside to save us from this situation. We need help. Well, Satan accuses us, and there's no hiding all this squawking sin in our hearts, right? Or going back to the vision, there's no covering up the stench of our sin and of our self-righteousness. So we need this divine intervention. And, and I want you to think about this vision uh, that Zechariah is seeing. Zechariah is from Judah. He's the prophet of God in Judah. And and he's seeing in this vision his priest, the one who is supposed to go before the Lord to bring his, his, he's supposed to represent the people in the presence of God, to bring atonement for the people. And he's clothed in filthy rags. So, you know, as Zechariah is seeing seeing this, he's seeing that it's a hopeless situation for him because the only person that can save him, that can that can offer, you know, the, the, the sacrifices that are needed, is standing there guilty and condemned. So what are we going to do? What is Zechariah going to do? So that's the double problem in this vision. And uh, but I want to I want us to look now at at how how the gospel is spoken into that problem, really in, with, with kind of a double answer to this, this problem. So we've seen the accuser's case, right? Satan's case is solid against us. We're dead to rights. We're all guilty. 
But what we see next is that the accuser's case is silenced by the substitute. Silenced by the substitute. I love the last line of verse 5. If you have your Bible, look at it. Uh, It says, And the angel of the Lord was standing by. So who is this angel of the Lord? The angel of the Lord is Jesus. You know, we see this because at the same time he's sitting as judge presiding over the case, he can also speak of the Lord as a separate person. So, so the best explanation of this is that this is the second person of the Trinity, the Son of God, pre-incarnate, standing by. So we could paraphrase that last line, and Jesus was standing by. Jesus was standing by, and that's a line that's full of gospel hope. Jesus was standing by. If you've come here this morning beaten down because of your sin, but you're trusting in Jesus, you're clinging to his grace, you know the hope of that line, Jesus is standing by. You know the joy of having Jesus standing by, like 1 John 2, 1 says, my dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. We have an advocate. We, we all want that man in our corner, right? If we're going to stand in, in court against a veteran prosecuting att- attorney like, like the accuser, Satan, the devil, we want to have a top shelf defense, but we're, we're broke. We can't afford it. We can't do anything uh, to, to, to answer our accuser by ourselves. But when we have faith in Jesus, we see Jesus standing by. And Jesus standing by is the greatest news of all. It's the good news of grace. And it just jumps off the page all of a sudden when the advocate, the defense attorney, Jesus, he's standing by and he silences the accuser. Verse 2, he really, it seems like he shouts this. He says, the Lord rebuke you, O Satan. The Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. So what's the case that our substitute presents? Our defense attorney, our, our Lord Jesus Christ says, Uh, really two things about the people, and there are two things that are true of us as well. He says, first, the people are chosen for rescue. They're chosen for rescue. Look again with me at verse 2. It says, the Lord who has chosen Jerusalem rebuke you. Is not this a brand plucked from the fire? So what does that mean, a brand plucked from the fire? Uh, Well, this goes back to that idea of exile, the exile, the 70 years in Babylon that we talked about earlier, it's described throughout the Old Testament as, as a fire or a furnace like Egypt. It, it's, they're a brand plucked from the fire, rescued beyond hope. And they're rescued because there was a promise that was older than their rebellion. And it's really the promise of the gospel. The promise made to Abraham that a seed would come from his line that would save uh, all nations. And that's where Satan went totally wrong in his case against the people, and he goes wrong in his case against us as well. I, I read someone really helpfully, that really helpfully pointed out this week that, that Satan was only presenting half of the evidence. He was only looking at one side of the coin. You see, he was pointing out their transgression, just like he does to us, full stop. And that's, that's what he does when he accuses us, right? He says, pulls up the Ten Commandments and says, here's your track record, and he slashes up our obedience like, I don't know, like a, 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 a really strict grader going over your midterm. Um, but he's, but he's, he's being sneaky here, right? Because he's, the prosec- he's prosecuting Joshua and the people and us only on the basis of part of the evidence. There's a promise that changes everything. There's a promise of the gospel and of redemption. It's a promise that we all need. And it's a promise that we find in Jesus who's standing by. Because Paul talks about this promise in Galatians. He says that the law, uh, 
which is the side of the coin that, that the accuser is using against Joshua, against us, that can't nullify the promise that God made to Abraham. He says, now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It is not saying to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one and to your offspring, who is Christ. This promise of Christ had been given almost 500 years before the law even, even, even appeared and was given to the people. And it's the promise of Jesus. <clears throat> These were, so Jesus says, the, the substitute says, this is a brand plucked from the fire. He says they're chosen for redemption. It's what we find in Deuteronomy 7. So why the nation was called out of Egypt in the first place. It says, if it was not because, it was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you are the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers. It's because of the promise. It's because of the oath sworn to the fathers. So you see, it's just, it's, it's as simple as this. No Jesus, no rescue. And without Jesus, there are no new robes. That's why it's so important for us, this promise. Jesus came through Judah. Judah was rescued. Judah was brought back to the land so that our Redeemer could come so that we could be beneficiaries of this promised grace. So we see that they're chosen for rescue, but we also see um, something else, and it's very important. We see that they're clothed in righteousness. And here's where we really come to the climax of this rags to righteousness story. Look at Zechariah 3, 4 to 5. And the angel said to those who were standing before him, remove the filthy garments from him. And to him he said, behold, I have taken your iniquity away from you. And I will clothe you with pure vestments. And I said, Zechariah, interjecting here, let them put a clean turban on his head. So they put a clean turban on his head and clothed him with garments. And the angel of the Lord was standing by. And this is where the gospel really sings in Zechariah chapter 3. The devil slinks off. We don't hear from him again. And then Joshua is totally reclothed. He's given new clothes, new garments. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel. Uh, a preacher uh, named Thomas Manton put it this way. He said, there's no getting the blessing, but in the garment of our older brother. In other words, these are the gospel hand-me-downs from our older brother, Jesus. That's the only way that we can be brought out of our rags into righteousness, and it's through the hand-me-downs of Jesus. It's what Hebrews says, right? For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That's why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. We're made holy by those hand-me-downs. And that's good news that we see in Zechariah 3. So we see that Joshua's symbolic filthy garments are removed and his iniquity and his sin, and he's given these new robes of righteousness. And then there's this sort of like crowning moment in the vision where Zechariah, who seems like he's on the edge of his seat, he, he, he blurts out, right? Kind of interjecting into the vision. Put a clean turban on his head. And we wonder, I mean, so what's up with that? I can't help but think that this is Zechariah finally realizing what's about to happen, what gospel promise is about to be fulfilled for himself and for Judah. You see, the high priest is filthy. The, 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 the turban is tied in with the priestly robes that were necessary to go in and make atonement. So if the priest isn't fitted for duty, if the priest can't go in and make atonement, then Zechariah and the people are still out of luck. So he just blurts out, put a clean turban on his head. And it's significant because we see the turban placed on his head. And now we see Joshua really changing in this vision. He's no longer representing the filthy, guilty people, but now he's a high priest ready to make atonement for the sins of the nation, for your sins, for my sin. And at this point, 
the symbolism changes, and Joshua himself is representing our high priest, Jesus. Our high priest who is fitted for duty. Our high priest who can make atonement for our sin. So we see that the accuser's case is solid, but it's silenced by this substitute. And now the priest himself, Joshua, the one who represented the guilty people, now represents those who would be saved by this gospel promise. We see some other descriptions of, of what this substitute, this, this savior, this priest would be. We see in Zechariah 3.8, he's called the branch. And probably the best explanation of what that is, is in Jeremiah 23.5-6, where we read the following about our substitute, the branch, this priest. He says, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, a king who will reign wisely and do what is just and right in the land. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will live in safety. And this is the name by which he will be called the Lord, our righteous savior. And in the New Testament, we read these wonderful words in light of that. Second Corinthians 521, for our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin so that in him, we might become the righteousness of God. That's the great substitution of the gospel. Not only does Jesus stand as the defense against the accuser's accusations, but he substitutes himself in our place and he takes on the punishment that we deserve so that we can be forgiven and cleansed and clothed. We read in Zechariah 3.9, it says, kind of continuing this vision, he says, I will remove the iniquity of this land in a single day. One single day, and all of the sin of the land will be gone. What is he referring to? What is the single day? I will remove the iniquity of the land in a single day refers to the cross of Calvary. The day when our high priest was nailed to a wooden cross and his blood spilled down on Golgotha so that we could have the accuser's case against us silenced forever, so that we could be clothed in his righteousness. We see it when John... You know, for the first time Jesus is approaching and John the Baptist sees him coming and says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away not just the sin of the land. This was a a greater fulfillment that even Zechariah could have envisioned. It says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin, not just of Judah, but of the world. Of the world. So we, we see in this remarkable, really rich vision in Zechariah, this rags to righteousness story that just outstrips any other story that we might want to be a part of. We see that it answers our greatest need. It answers the the condemnation of sin and death. And it's a story that begins with, with us completely guilty, yet completely covered by the good news of Jesus, by the, the righteousness of Christ substituted in our place, our sins on him, his righteousness on us. So I just want to ask you a couple of things as we close. Um, are you hoping in the righteousness of the substitute, or are you here this morning thinking that you really have some nice pants on, that you really, uh, you, can, you can stand before God based on your own obedience, based on your own moral living. You're a pretty nice person. If that's the case, you need to run from that as hard and as fast as you can and place your faith completely and utterly on Christ who's the only one who can clothe you, who can give you forgiveness because of his righteous life. And I want to ask you this morning, if you're sitting here feeling just beaten down with guilt, 
and you feel like you should just run out these back doors and never come back because Jesus could never accept you because you've been so unfaithful, you've been so rebellious. If that's the case, then you need to be real about your sin, be honest, but place your faith in the substitute. Place your faith in the one who has stood there completely clothed in righteousness and ready to give that to you and has placed that on you by faith. You can, you can say the, the encouraging words of Zechariah 3. Whenever you feel that, you can say, I have Jesus standing by. You can throw my sins at me. You can point to anything you want. But I have Jesus standing by, and there really is no case to be made against me. I want to pray. I want to pray for you. I want to pray for us that we would rest in this gospel truth this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for this vision. This, this vision that can be full of symbolism, and sometimes we, we shy away from them because they can be confusing, but what a rich picture of righteousness by faith. What a rich picture of being clothed in the hand-me-downs, the gospel robes of righteousness that we, we get from our older brother Jesus, who perfectly lived the life that we can't live, we never do live, and then put himself in the place of, of our punishment so that we could be forgiven. Father, we thank you that he now lives to intercede for us, that we always have Jesus standing by every moment of every day. And every time we fail, Jesus is standing by to, 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 to plead gospel grace for us before your throne. We thank you for the mercy and help that we have from that throne in, in every time of need. We, we ask that you would help us to live worthy of this great gospel gift that we've received. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Dan, you were welcome to do this part, but that's all right. No worries. Um, at, this, at this time, uh, we renew our faith together um, according to uh, the, the New City Catechism. Uh, we've been going along, and if you have a bulletin, um, it's in the back, on the back page there with the sermon notes. Um, New City Catechism, question 41. Maybe this is a good time to announce, too. Beginning next week, um, first week back after a two-week break, um, I'd like to have this part of the, 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 the service be earlier so our children can be present um, so that all of our kids can say it with us. And we'll actually go through the shorter version, the children's version, rather than the longer in the service just to help our kids really embrace this as well with us and help us learn. Because my kids teach me a lot more than I teach them, actually. Anyways, uh, so what is the Lord's Prayer? And this is one we've heard many times. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we have also forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And then we can actually finish that. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's stand together and sing our last song of worship. Before the throne of God above, and close with Gloria Patri. 
Before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love, whoever lives and pleads for me. My name is graven on his hands. My name is written on his heart. I know that while in heaven he stands, no tongue can beat me that's deep heart. No tongue can beat me that's deep heart. When Satan within a word I look and see him there made an end of all my sin because a sinless Savior died my sinful soul is counted free for God the just is satisfied Righteousness, the great unchangeable I am, the King of glory and of grace. One in Himself, I cannot die. My soul is purchased by His blood. My life is hid with Christ on high. Savior and my God, with Christ my Savior and my God. Before the throne, before the throne of God above, I have a strong and perfect plea, a great high priest whose name is love. Whoever lives and pleads for me. Glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy As it was in the beginning, is now and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together.
Lord God, Heavenly Father, we thank you for saving us when no one else could. We thank you for showing us ourselves and our sinful nature in this text, a covenant lawsuit. We thank you for sending us your Son and showing us him as high priest in your word this morning. I pray that your word has come alive for these dear brothers and sisters. Continue to bless Redemption Church. Continue to bless the efforts and all the planning and consideration, all for the sake of sharing the love of Christ and the gospel through broken people who once wore rags of filth. Yet we are clothed in rags no longer. Christ has changed us and exchanged our filthy rags for his radiant robes of righteousness. Purchased at a price, his precious blood, which is fully satisfied for all our sin. We can now approach the throne in peace. So, Lord, may we go in peace, and as we go, may we glorify you in this and all that we do. For yours alone is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. So now as a people no longer clothed in that glory story that we always tell ourselves, moving from rags to riches, you know, how can I get rich? How can I get famous? How can I get successful? How can I this and that? And I can do it all myself. But now we're clothed with robes of, of, of filth and robes of, and there's so many wonderful ways that you put it, and, and my memory is fading fast. And so I'm looking at my notes. robes of righteousness in Jesus Christ. As, as we're reclothed in that, let that be the image as we go and as we, um, as, as verse 10 ended so beautifully, sending us out now into the world again, tomorrow, tonight, today, right now after the service, to be missionally driven, to be thinking about our neighbors and, and to go and tell, as verse, sent, verse 10 says, go and tell and tell them to come and go and gather, right? It moves us out because the gospel is really that good. So, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all this morning. In Christ Jesus. Amen. Amen.